sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Welcome to my study. Uh, please come in and have a seat. All these books uh, surrounding you are used to research our show, and the individual here to my right, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any of the passages we'll be directly quoting from these books. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. So, uh, before we hit the record button, we are debating how much of this to go into, but I suppose listeners might be curious about our... Uh, Unfolding dramas outside? Involving my hives, as I predicted. The uh, beehives Mrs. Carswell keeps were raided for honey, and some garbage cans were overturned, and we're thinking it's possibly a bear, or... I don't know. I really don't. The hives themselves weren't raided. It was just the winter feeder trays. They have honey in them. Or did. Occasionally we have sightings of bears coming out from the mountains, getting into the garbage cans. Some of that wire fencing was knocked down and there was an animal smell or some muskiness. Not musk. Unpleasant. More feral. Almost like urine. I'm sorry, but that's what it was like. I'm afraid if Mr. Petrovich is living in the woods, he doesn't take a bus into town to urinate, you know. That's the other thing. We can't put it all together. Mr. Petrovich um, was a uh, temporary employee here doing some outside cleanup, whom, uh, well, Mrs. Carswell thinks he's camping in the uh, adjacent woods. It's not just me. You heard him, too. Yeah, last month at night, we uh, heard some commotion in the woods, a sort of a nighttime uh, party, or a party of one, some drunken yelling and howling. It, it could have been Serbian. He's Serbian. It was Hard to hear actual words. And he did seem very curious about my hives. But the garbage cans overturned? That's more of a bear thing. Who knows with him? The feeder trays weren't just broken off, by the way. They were removed. A bear would just tear open the hives themselves. A human would know to avoid the bees and just go for the easy honey in the feeders. There's a jar that's attached to the tray, and that was pried off, or possibly even unscrewed. I can't imagine a bear doing that. No. They were emptied on the spot. The empty jars were lying all around. You'd think a human would just walk off with the jars for later. So it's not a bear? I don't know. It's disgusting. If it's a person guzzling honey... That's no way to enjoy, honey. That's not human. Just standing there under the moonlight, head thrown back, guzzling honey. I keep thinking of him like that, and it disgusts me. I picture the honey just running down his chin and chest. Uh, Well, we really don't have evidence of him living in the woods, at least not where we looked. We did walk around the woods looking for an encampment, and there was no actual tent, but there was that one area. That was just where people were dumping trash. The tarps and cardboard under the rock. And liquor bottles. I know, but, well, 
I'm not even sure what's worse, a bear or a vagabond with an eye on your property. I may have to get some help on this. It's really affected me. I'm even having dreams about it now. Nightmares. Mm. I dreamed he showed up in the house and stared at me. When we were both in a jewelry store and they were putting silver chains on our necks with bells on them. I didn't want one. I didn't want anything matching him. That's why I have these marks on my neck. What? I was trying to tear the chain off in my sleep, but I couldn't. I guess I scratched myself. You didn't notice that I had my collar buttoned, but I can show you. That's fine. I believe you. Look, I'll make some calls about this. If nothing else, it's trespassing. Assuming it's human, it's trespassing, not a bear. Anyway, we should uh, get started. I'd appreciate that. I really would. Okay. Um, I'll figure something out. Uh, so, we have episode 44, Banshees. <laughs> I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to uh, further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive a number of unique and sometimes handcrafted rewards, which are related to the show and its themes. And I'll have more on Patreon at the end of the episode. I do hope you'll consider doing your part to keep this show coming out regularly. When my father died, the school teacher back the road, Mrs. Tui, she's dead too, God rest her, she said she heard the gate opening and she heard the door of the kitchen opening. They were in bed. They didn't know he was dying. What people will tell you, the they banshee the is screening when the McCarthy died. She said that's the banshee. The banshee's at the altar screen. The banshee followed them, you see, when they died. When he was found dead in exactly the same place. Within so we were terrified of them. The banshee. In honor of St. Patrick's Day, we'll be turning our attention this time to Ireland's most dreaded folkloric figure, the banshee, or the uh, banshee, that is the... Uh, Two separate words, differently spelled in Irish, meaning woman of the fairy mounds. These uh, she are the uh, tumuli, or the barrows, or ancient burial mounds, believed in Ireland to be the dwelling place of fairies. The uh, she and she are the uh, modern and older Irish terms for the fairies making their homes there. However, as the character's been known since the 17th century... The uh, Banshee doesn't quite fit into the traditional world of fairies, not in the way this uh, world duplicates the social structures of the human world with its uh, palaces and courts and royalty and games and amorous relationships. The uh, Banshee, as it evolved in the early modern period, is uh, very much a solitary figure. Her primary occupation is mourning, and not in any reserved or quiet way, of course. The scream for which she's known is a wail of grief that betokens the imminent death of someone close, uh, and traditionally this would always be a blood relative. Uh, this sound, by the way, would never predict one's own death, as the dying person never hears the banshee. And the scream uh, certainly never causes death, as uh, some modern horror stories or movies might have it. The Irish are famous for their unrestrained emotive funeral customs, which in the old days included uh, dedicated mourners, 
often professionals, who were called keeners from the uh, Irish word quena or lament. Sometimes, as in the uh, province of Leinster, uh, you'll even hear the term banshinta, meaning keening or crying woman, substituting for that uh, less descriptive banshee, which is just the woman of the mount. That's a uh, 1957 Smithsonian field recording of a keen, a funeral lament from the uh, Aran Islands at the mouth of Ireland's Galway Bay. But it's probably not something you would ever hear twice, as keens aren't necessarily raw and improvisational. Uh, the keeners who would often arrive in groups of three would rock back and forth and uh, incorporate tearful wails and gasps and repetitive nonsense syllables called uh, vocables. Sometimes also they'd thump rhythmically on the coffins. The keeners would take turns in a sort of um, handoff process, marking the end of their verse with one of these uh, syllables or a uh, characteristic gasp. And then the next keener would uh, pick up from there. Familial and ancestral relations of the deceased would be enumerated like the beloved Mary Fitzsimmons born to the father of this name and mother of that name and granddaughter of this and that person. She's lost to this poor grieving husband of this name and son of these people and so forth. Though the um, Banshee's wail was uh, usually merely an inarticulate howl, in some instances there are similar uh, verbal elements, these uh, enumerations of the mourned and the mourning. Now, while the Banshee's cry is known for uh, a horrible piercing quality, uh, coming from the fairy realm as it does, it could also have uh, a sort of otherworldly beauty. For instance, Lady August Gregory, the dramatist, uh, folklorist, and one of the writers behind the uh, Irish literary revival of the 19th century, she mentions this quality or quotes a, a local who uh, mentions it, one only identified as Old Simon. This is in her 1920 book, Visions and Beliefs in the West of Ireland. Simon says, I heard her beside the river at Ballylee one time. I would stand barefooted in the snow, listening to the tune she had. So nice and so calm and so mournful. While most frequently accounts of the Banshee mention nothing but a wail coming from some invisible source, um, others do sometimes describe the appearance of a figure, usually at night and near the home where the death will occur. So uh, as to the descriptions, uh, in a culture where the woman's hair would more often than not be put up in some way, the Banshee's hair is invariably described as uh, being long and hanging in a disheveled way or even floating about her. And, uh, of course, this is because the idea of neglecting the customary fixing of one's hair would be taken as a sign of grief, particularly among older women. And the Banshee does frequently have the uh, gray or white hair of elderly women, or sometimes also uh, red hair, possibly due to the color's association with passion. Her depiction as uh, elderly could uh, simply be a way to suggest uh, her uh, ancient ancestral link with the family, or it uh, might relate to the fact that uh, keening was often performed by older women, particularly as the custom began to die out. As a mourner, her eyes are also sometimes described as being red from weeping. 
Though there's the extremely rare report of a banshee of unusually uh, tall stature, if her height is mentioned at all, it's often because she is unusually small. This would seem to be something inherited from the fairies, at least in uh, more recent centuries when fairies were imagined in this way. The uh, banshee that followed the uh, previously mentioned old Simon, for instance, was described by him this way. I looked down and saw a little woman, very broad and broad-faced about the bigness of the seat of that table, and had a cloak about her. Cloaks are often mentioned, though this would be nothing distinctive for a woman out and about in Ireland of the day. But another uh, curious bit of dress is also sometimes included. More than once, I run across uh, 19th century reports of the banshee appearing with a petticoat over her head. In both cases, it was a red one. This um, reflects a custom of keeners in the country who would also appear with petticoats or shawls used like this, at least in rural settings where presumably they substituted for the, sort of the silk mourning veils that might be used more in the cities. Another uh, unexpected detail I encountered is the clapping banshee. The 1910 book by Thomas Johnson Westrup, a folklore survey of County Clare, for instance, describes this sighting from the mid-1700s. A little old woman with long white hair and a black cloak running to and fro on top of the side wall, clapping her hands and wailing. As you might have guessed, clapping was also part of the uh, Keener's performance. Uh, we find this clapping again in the 1825 book, Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland, by Thomas Crofton Croker, in uh, which he recounts another story from the 1770s, one of the banshee that heralded the death of his uh, own great-uncle. A servant, who is initially taken to be drunk by his incredulous mistress, makes uh, this report of another daytime banshee sighted along the road. She was along with me, keening and screeching and clapping her hands by my side every step of the way, with her long white hair falling about her shoulders, and I could hear her repeat the master's name every now and then, as plain as I ever heard it. Another habit of the banshee, which is quite frequent in the old stories, is her use of a comb. Now, uh, while this uh, conflicts with what I said earlier about unkempt hair, I believe this element has been carried over from uh, mermaid stories, as we'll later see a connection between uh, banshees and bodies of water. Whatever the case, it's very common that a banshee is sighted combing her hair, or perhaps even more common, uh, her comb is uh, found or stolen by a uh, human. A case of uh, theft from the banshee like this is the one instance I'm aware of in which the banshee actually causes uh, a death of a human. That is, she uh, whisks him away to the other side. But more often, the comb must be returned to the banshee, who will uh, show up at the home of the person possessing it. Uh, the return must be accomplished without actually touching the banshee, and is usually done by passing the comb through the window on a shovel or held in iron tongs. Iron, of course, being a sort of a kryptonite for the fairies. One story even mentions using red-hot tongs, which would seem a bit excessive, perhaps. Now, the uh, banshee serves as a death omen only for certain families, old families. 
sometimes it's said there are only five families, uh, the O'Neills, the O'Briens, the O'Connors, the O'Grady's, and the Kavanaugh's, but this is really often contradicted. While there is a uh, certain status to having a hereditary banshee, the family banshee is actually more dutiful than snobbish. As D.R. McCanley reports in his 1888 book, Irish Wonders, Though descendants, through misfortune, may be brought down from high estate to the ranks of peasant tenants, she never leaves nor forgets them, till the last member has been gathered to his fathers in the churchyard. And she is not bound to the Emerald Isle. She monitors the status of family members overseas, and there are many stories of families of soldiers dying overseas, alerted to the deaths back home. Or there's a case of the banshee that's said to have appeared to the family of the Duke of Wellington when he expired at his castle in England. John Seymour and Harry Nelligan, in their 1914 book, True Irish Ghost Stories, tell of a party on a yacht on an Italian lake. A mysterious guest is sighted among the partygoers, but when a member of the group asks their host, a uh, Count Nelsini, about the woman, he refuses to believe there is anyone unaccounted for. A moment after posing this question, however, the guest spies her again and screams and hides his face. What is it? asked the Count. It was a woman of no earthly type, with a queer-shaped, gleaming face, a mass of red hair, and eyes that would have been beautiful, but for their expression, which was hellish. But then the Count reveals... My family name is, as you know, Nelsini, which, little more than a century ago, was O'Neill. Unsurprisingly, then... Within two hours, Nelsini was seized with a violent attack of angina pectoris and died before morning. While the appearance of the Banshee uh, to these particular families would be a dreaded event, it is, uh, in the main, not an act of malevolence. But there are definitely outliers here, uh, situations in which her attachment to the house would be uh, more like uh, that of a vengeful ghost. Possibly the first Banshee account to make it to print is this type. It's an anecdote recorded in a memoir written by Lady Anne Fanshawe, recounting her life with husband Sir Richard Fanshawe, an English ambassador to the Spanish court under Charles I and II. The incident takes place in 1642 during a visit by the couple to the house of Lady Honora O'Brien in Ireland. So it describes a version of the uh, O'Brien Banshee. I was surprised when, about one o'clock, I heard a voice that wakened me. I drew the curtain, and in the casement of the window, I saw by the light of the moon a woman leaning into the window through the casement in white, with red hair and pale and ghastly complexion. She spoke loud and in a tone I had never heard thrice. A horse! And then with a sigh, more like the wind than breath, she vanished, and to me her body looked more like a thick cloud than substance. I was so much frightened that my hair stood on end and my night clothes fell off. I'm not sure about her clothing falling off, but... The next morning, their host, who was away overnight, does a bit of explaining. "'Tis the custom of the place that when any of the family are dying, 
the shape of a woman appears in the window every night till they be dead. This woman was many ages ago got with child by the owner of this place who murdered her in his garden and flung her into the river under the window. But truly, I thought not of it when I lodged you here, it being the best room in the house. So here the banshee is more in that uh, vengeful ghost mode. Uh, A further bit of information snaps it all into place. The host reveals that her overnight errand involved her presence at the bedside of a relative who had died at 2 a.m., an hour after the spirit's appearance. It's not noted, but I'd like to believe that he died of uh, injuries sustained in an equestrian accident. Uh, No other explanation of this uh, horse utterance is actually offered. Another story of a banshee, somewhat in the uh, vengeful ghost mode. On the coast of the North Channel across from Scotland in County Antrim is Dunluce Castle, where another banshee is often said to be the uh, ghost of uh, one who met a tragic fate. As the castle towers directly over the sea, the most common legend attached to it describes an incident in which part of the structure, the kitchen, uh, collapses down the cliff, leaving the kitchen boy, or sometimes a piper, as the lone survivors, saved only by his presence in some fortuitously secure niche or corner of the room. A, uh, another tale, and one more related to our theme, has a uh, female uh, kitchen servant, a maid called Maeve Rowe, or a red, a red-headed Maeve, as the one that perishes in the accident, and as one who returns to haunt the castle. And still another legend presents this uh, Maeve uh, Banshee as a daughter that was imprisoned in her room to prevent marriage to a suitor disdained by the father. Attempting to escape on a rope ladder, she falls into the ocean and drowns, returning then as a warning ghost when the ocean is stormy or a member of the MacDonald family is on the verge of death. The room where she was said to be imprisoned is the uh, castle's now famous Banshee's room, one that's said to be perpetually clean and free of dust, swept away by its attending spirit, or uh, perhaps the uh, seaside winds. Now, there's another uh, banshee room in another castle, also in County Antrim, about an hour south. Uh, It's Shane's Castle, and it uh, hosts a banshee also with a a red appellation uh, called um, Nenny Roe, or uh, Red Nenny, Red Nenny with red hair. And together, these two are sometimes referred to as the Red Sisters. However, this version of the figure, the um, banshee of the uh, O'Neills in this case, seems much more related to the lore of uh, fairies rather than ghosts. We hear a bit about her in an 1858 issue of the Ulster Journal of Archaeology, uh, featuring an interview with a local who's been employed at the castle. The informant recounts um, a bit of a jumble of stories related to Shane's castle and its banshee. In one, a servant of one of the O'Neill lords, um, while the two of them are in England in the town of Bath, he goes to a well to draw water, where he encounters 
An old woman sitting beside it crying bitterly and tearing her hair as if in despair. Unable to help or engage this character in conversation, he becomes a, a bit frightened and he leaves without the water and rushes back to Lord O'Neill and reports what's happened. Fearing a death at home, O'Neill immediately arranges for travel back to Ireland, but he has misread the omen. No one has died in Ireland. It is O'Neill himself who dies during the journey. And the uh, storyteller quoted in this uh, archaeological journal tells another story explaining why a room in Shane's castle is uh, known as the Banshee's Room and still is. In particular, she mentions uh, its fine furnishings, including... A state bed of the grandest sort. By the way, legend has it that on this bed, impressions of a reclining body sometimes appear, even when the room is known to be locked and vacant. These uh, sumptuous uh, furnishings, our storyteller explains, were only part of the gifts lavished upon a mysterious and beautiful woman that one of the O'Neill lords met on his travels. He brought her to Shane's castle. Everyone that saw her knew she wasn't of this world. She never smiled, but pined for from wherever she came. Though she had no cause for that, for Lord O'Neill loved the ground she walked on. At any rate, she died, it was said. But if she did, no human eyes ever saw the corpse. There was a grand funeral. The O'Neills always had that. But the lady wasn't in it. Her own gentle people took her to themselves, as everyone in the castle knew well enough at the time. Then, in 1816, on the occasion of a large party, the uh, Banshee Room, normally kept locked and available for the uh, spirit's occasional um, invisible drop-ins, was opened and used to accommodate guests. Of course, this was quite offensive to the Banshee, and the result was said to be a fire which destroyed much of the castle in 1816. That uh, fire bit, at least, is documented. Along the way here, I should also mention some other figures from Celtic folklore, more or less equivalent with the uh, Irish Banshee. In the uh, Scottish Highlands, we have the uh, figure of the Cognac, which literally means weeper. Her wailing similarly uh, foretells deaths, particularly those of men lost in battles, and she is likewise attached to uh, certain clans, though she appears not only at ancestral homes, but frequently at lakes and streams and waterfalls. In uh, Wales, uh, there's the Cahareith, uh, a uh, name from words related to uh, skeleton. Her cries come in threes, and she's associated with particular parishes, uh, the River Toy and the uh, southern coast of Glamorgan, between uh, Swansea and Cardiff, where her moaning is heard before shipwrecks, along with the uh, flickering of supernatural lights. Wales is also home to the Gurach Uribin, a death omen like the uh, Banshee that appears at crossroads and streams, as well as the windows of the Moribund. Descriptions of her appearance or attributes are quite variable in 19th century folklore volumes, sometimes including leathern wings or long black teeth, wretched skinny shriveled arms of unwanted length or long red hair and a face like chalk and great teeth like tusks. 
Now I'm going to return to this idea of the Banshee's connection to, or identity as, uh, fairies. I mentioned at the start of the show how there was some uh, disconnect here, as Banshees are normally solitary figures. But we've already seen a mortal and a Banshee marry in the story from Shane's Castle. And the further back you go, the more you find these uh, fairy-like connections, as the Banshee's identity broadens beyond uh, simply serving as a herald of death. For instance, there is a figure uh, called Clena, who is known as the Queen of the Banshees of Southern Ireland, particularly the uh, province of Munster and the city of Cork. She also served as a, a tutelary spirit, a guardian of the old families of this region, bestowing favors, announcing deaths, and even becoming uh, romantically entangled with these mortals. A uh, chieftain named O'Quaif is the uh, object of a jealous rivalry between uh, Clena and her banshee sister, Avil. The squabble results in the two banshees taking turns, turning each other into cats. But it ends with Avil mostly gaining the upper hand, which is nice because uh, she's the one I actually wanted to discuss. Avil's name means the lovely one, so we might assume she was uh, more attractive than her sister. She was also regarded as a queen of sorts and was said to be constantly attended by 25 other banshees. Her domain was a bit further north in Munster in County Clare, where she was for centuries associated with a number of family lines, particularly the O'Briens. It's even been suggested that in pre-Christian times she may have been worshipped as a goddess at a particular site, always mentioned in connection with her. This is uh, Caraglia, uh, the Grey Rock near the uh, Palace of Kincora, the 11th century seat of the High King of Ireland, Brian Baru, founder of the O'Brien dynasty. Avil figures into uh, an important story about Brian Baru, that of the uh, Battle of Clontarf near Dublin, in which Baru's men opposed an alliance of Vikings and Irish lords. In the uh, 12th century manuscript, The War of the Irish with the Foreigners, we hear that on Good Friday of 1014, word was sent to the elderly king's tent that his son was facing defeat, to which he replied, Retreat becomes us not, and I myself know that I shall not depart alive. For Avil of Caraglia came to me last night, and she told me that I should be killed today. Though Baru's forces are victorious, both he and his son, as foretold, are killed by the enemy. The death omen of the music of Avil's harp is also mentioned in another 12th century tale, the Cattle Raid of Cooley, a conflict over a stolen bull between the uh, kingdoms of Ulster and Connacht. The hero of Ulster is Cuchulain, a sort of uh, Irish Hercules, a uh, demigod whose uh, fate is uh, similarly uh, foretold. We hear in uh, Lady Gregory's 1904 translation of this tale in her book Gods and Fighting Men from 1904 that it is the music from the harp that... Cucullin heard the time his enemies were gathering against him, and he knew by it that his life was near its end. He also encounters another banshee-like herald of death, not identified by name. And presently they came to a ford, and they saw a young girl, thin and white-skinned and having yellow hair, washing and ever washing and wringing out clothes that was stained with crimson red, and she crying and keening all the time. Cucullin's companion correctly interprets this image of 
bloody clothing or shrouds as an omen of his coming death in battle. Earlier, I mentioned a connection between banshees and bodies of water, which is what we're seeing here. And the figure who washes these uh, bloody clothes in the stream is not restricted to Ireland. She's been termed the Washer at the Ford by folklorists, and can be found in Scotland, where she's known as the Bainich, or Washerwoman, and can also be found in Wales, in Cornwall, as well as Brittany, and certain other French regions, where uh, these washers, the uh, Lavandiers, are sometimes called the Midnight Washers, are often said to have the feet of ducks, I guess, spending that much time in the water. Humans who encounter them in Brittany are compelled to... Uh, help launder the bloody garments, uh, refuse, and you will be drowned, and if you help, your arms will be broken, twisted like the uh, dripping garments they bring dry and torn from their joints. So it's uh, a real win-win. But uh, I have a particularly satisfying account of these sorts of laundress banshees um, occurring in the Irish Chronicle, the Triumphs of Turlock, written about 1380. It uh, tells of the wars between the Irish O'Briens, led by Turlock, against the uh, Anglo-Norman Declares. It describes three different encounters with banshees, or prophetic fairy women of that type. Uh, the first is atypical, or it's uh, closer to the um, lovely figures of Cleona and Avil in a more protective aspect. This one identifies herself as... The Sovereignty of Ireland. And though encountered at a lake, is not washing bloody garments. She's described as... A lone woman that approached them. Fair of face she was, and of modest mien. Rare altogether. For the strangeness of her aspect, for the glory of her form, all as one man took heed to her. A maid with rosy lip. With soft and tapered hand, pliant and wavy, her flowing hair was, and her breasts were very white. She makes her appearance to reprimand Turlock for uh, turning back from a particular battle in which he could have seen victory. And with her parting words, she then... Ascended from them upwards in the semblance of a lustrous cloud. The uh, second banshee is encountered by the waters of Loch Rask. As the soldiers approach, they behold... The monstrous and distorted form of a lone, ancient, hideous hag that stooped over the bright lock shore. The hideous creature's semblance was this. She was thatched with elf locks, foxy grey, and rough as heather. Long as seaweed, inextricably tangled, and had a wrinkled, foully ulcerated forehead. Every hair of her eyebrows was like a strong fish hook, and from under them, bleary, dripping eyes peered with a malignant fire between raw, crimson-edged lids. She had a great bluish nose, flattened and wide, copiously snorting and dripping. Her lips were livid, white-rimmed postular that outwards turned up to her snout, and downwards to a stubby beard. The crone had a mound of heads, a pile of arms and legs, a load of spoils, all which she rinsed and diligently washed, so that by her labor, the water in its whole extension was covered with hair and gory brains. 
When the soldiers demand her name, she says that it is... The Dismal of Burren. I should point out that this figure is encountered by the English declares, not the uh, soldiers of Turlock, who, as the book's name suggests, will be triumphant. As this creature speaks in Irish, an interpreter is called to interpret her prophecy of doom, and it is uh, not well received. By the perverse wretch's bitter forecast, the host was startled, and with javelin straight away would have cast at her, but on the rushing wind she rose above them. There is a uh, very similar banshee encountered by the Declares as they uh, cross the River Fergus. There they saw await them a horrific hag that in the current washed and with huge exertion dipped old armors, satin vestments, gold-threaded jackets, and smooth silken shirts with other garments of an army, so that of all the river below her was made a brew of blood and water. From the frightful being's fist, as she wrung those fabrics violently, the red blood squirted and fell, dying the river over. Her message of doom is the same, and, as foretold, the soldiers of Dermot O'Brien rout the English declares at the Battle of Crook Camro on August 15, 1317. Listen. because I know she's coming to oversee my journey. She, the weeping one, she wails for the dead. I thought I'd wrap up the show with a quick look at some cinematic banshees. And what you're hearing now is from the 2009 Australian film Damned by Dawn. If uh, the title happens to remind you of a certain Sam Raimi movie, it's not by chance. Damned by Dawn is in no small part in homage to uh, Raimi's Evil Dead films. While its uh, banshee arrives traditionally enough to foretell the death of the lead's grandmother, it's uh, pretty soon attempting to kill off the entire cast in very non-traditional, if occasionally amusing ways. Oddly enough, I'd say it's a Disney film that presented a banshee that for many was most memorable, and that would be in the uh, 1959 film Darby Gill and the Little People, rated G. The uh, film is based on the uh, writings of uh, Irish writer H.T. Cavanaugh, author of the uh, 1903 book Darby O'Gill and the Good People, and as such, it makes a fair effort to represent the folklore accurately, to the extent that a Disney film of the 1950s could be expected to. Disney had been uh, eager to make this film for a while, arranging a 1947 visit to Ireland to discuss the project with the uh, National Folklore Commission there. But it was, uh, strangely enough, not until the copyright on uh, Kavanaugh's books expired that the film was actually released. Disney's promotional campaign included a peculiar attempt to suggest that he uh, captured actual leprechauns to play the roles in his film. I captured the king of the leprechauns. 
1954 episode of The Magical World of Disney, he appears alongside uh, actors representing the leprechauns discussing the production. And the uh, theatrical release of the film opens with an on-screen thank you to the leprechaun King Brian for his cooperation. Through the use of uh, forced perspective sets and other in-camera tricks, the leprechauns were combined quite convincingly with actors playing their uh, human counterparts. And even viewed today, the effect is still uh, surprisingly convincing. The Banshee! The brief appearance of the Banshee, while it suffers a bit from the dated feel of the solarized optical effects, was quite terrifying for audiences of the day, expecting no such intrusion in an otherwise uh, kid-friendly production. Though the uh, film is largely forgotten, this particular scene seems to have left a scar on children of its generation. Now, I'll close with a quote from the website Kinder Trauma, an entertaining forum discussing movies and television and other bits of pop culture that have proved unintentionally traumatizing. In it, uh, the writer recollects a special St. Patrick's Day screening at his school, an event complemented by uh, green mint chocolate uh, milkshakes. Hysteria erupted at the on-screen appearance of the screaming banshee. The younger kids started screaming, and some were even audibly sobbing. The girl sitting in front of me on the floor became so upset, she vomited green ice cream chunks all over the back of the boy sitting in front of her. The teacher running the projector stopped the film, and I don't think they ever showed it again for St. Patty's Day. Watch your newspaper for the theater where you and your family can see Darby O'Gill and the Little People. everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the uh, opportunity to share episodes with friends who might be inclined to also enjoy what we do as i uh, mentioned uh, patreon at the top of the show i do want to remind listeners we do need help to keep this show coming out regularly you can uh, find the donor link to our patreon page on our website boneandsickle.com or just google us uh, patreon members have a choice of rewards including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast digital downloads of rare books used in preparation of the show the uh, show soundscapes you hear in the background and a special handcrafted mystery kit mailed to our top level donors donation levels begin at one dollar a month and your support via patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. A special thanks to our new patrons, James Doyle, Lizbeth of Oil and Sugar, Haley, and to uh, Joseph Kral for upping his pledge. And thank you to Veins and Wires for the uh, very kind review. Leaving a review is a big help to us as it does raise the show's general visibility on Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boneandsickle.com. There you'll find uh, links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes for each episode, with plenty of images, video links to film, trailers, uh, clips, and music used in the program. Uh, sound design, otherwise, is uh, all original for this show. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidnauer, and Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. 
Thanks to uh, Martin Sullivan for some help with the uh, Welsh names and to uh, Pater O'Geelin for some uh, Irish help. And thanks to all you out there for listening. <laughs>